Lord, we're grateful for the every spiritual blessing that you have given to us in Christ. And, and um, just in saying that, Lord, it's so unlikely that we have even scratched the surface of what that is to be given by you every spiritual blessing in Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that you would allow us to touch a bit of that today in your word as we learn from you. Lord, allow us to learn from you. Have a minute, the ministry of your Holy Spirit at work this morning uh, through your word. We just would pray, Father, that your name would be honored and glorified and that all that we have in Christ would be opened up to us. Lord, I uh, pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The following essay was actually written on as a part of a application to New York University. According to the source that I read this in, it said that the person was accepted. And the, the question that they were addressing was that of, are there any personal accomplishments or significant experiences that you have had that help define you as a person? And so this was the person's response to this question of personal accomplishments or significant experiences. They said, I am a dynamic figure, often seen scaling walls and crushing ice. I've been known to remodel train stations on my lunch breaks, making them more efficient in the area of heat retention. I translate ethnic slurs for Cuban refugees. I write award-winning operas. I manage time efficiently. Occasionally, I tread water for three days in a row. I woo women with my sensuous and godlike trombone playing. I can pilot bicycles up to seven in, up several severe inclines with unflagging speed. I can cook 30-minute brownies in 20 minutes. I'm an expert in stucco, a veteran in love, and an outlaw in Peru. Uh, using the, a hoe and a large glass of water, I once single-handedly defended a small village in the Amazon basin from a herd of ferocious army ants. I play bluegrass cello. I scouted out, I'm, was scouted by the Mets. I am the subject of numerous documentaries. I am bored. When I am bored, I build large suspension bridges in my yard. I enjoy urban hang gliding. On Wednesdays after school, I repair electrical appliances free of charge. I'm an abstract artist, a concrete analyst, and a ruthless bookie. Critics worldwide swoon over my original line of corduroy evening wear. I don't perspire. I'm a private citizen, yet I receive fan mail. I've been a caller number nine. I have won the weekend passes. My, last summer, I toured New Jersey with a traveling centrifugal force demonstration. I bat 400. My deft floral arrangements have, have earned me fame in international botany circles. Children, trust me. I can hurl tennis rackets at small objects with deadly accuracy. I once read Paradise Lost, Moby Dick, and David Copperfield all in one day and still had time to refurbish an entire dining room that evening. I know the exact location of every food item in the supermarket. I have performed several covert operations for the CIA. 
I sleep once a week. When I do sleep, I sleep in a chair. While on vacation in Canada, I successfully negotiated with a group of terrorists who had seized a small bakery. The law of physics do not apply to me. I balance, I weave, I dodge, I frolic, and my bills are all paid. On weekends, I let off steam. In order to, in order to let off steam, I participate in full-contact origami. <laughs> years ago, years ago, I discovered the meaning of life but forgot to write it down. I've made extraordinary four-course meals using only a, I don't know what this is, a muli and a toaster oven. I, bre I breed prize-winning clams. I've won bullfights in San Juan, cliff diving competitions in Sri Lanka, and spelling bees at the Kremlin. I've played Hamlet. I have performed open-heart surgery. I have spoken with Elvis. Yet, I have not yet gone to college. So apparently this person was accepted to New York University with their answer to this question. So this humorous list of things that I've read to you seems like an impossible list of accomplishments. Any number of them is impossible for one person. But even if it were possible for a person to do these things, their life would be lacking without one aspect being addressed. Whether or not the person is in Christ. That's the state that a person is translated into when they and the Lord come to an intersecting point where they recognize that they need salvation on his behalf because of the work that was done by him in the person and work of Jesus Christ in his death and his resurrection. And upon receiving that, upon being translated to that, upon being regenerated, it's evidenced by the Holy Spirit taking residence in their heart and life. No matter what might be true in our lives, the issue of whether or not we are in Christ defines the aspect of our destiny, it, defines our, it redefines our past, and it should define our present mindset and what it means to walk with God. It comes down to the same real estate list of the most three important things to look for. That is location, 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 right? Right? Our location when we know Christ as our Savior is that we are in Christ. And so we pick up in Ephesians 1 where Paul is in the midst of describing these every spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. And he says here in verse 13 through 14, and we'll be looking at 14 through 20, but we'll, we'll dip back into 13 through 14 to kind of see the significance of of what we learn as it, what it means here in 13 through 14. Speaking about being in Christ, he says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So we see in Within these, uh, you know, the, the, the independent statement here is, in him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Between those are these clauses that describe the process of salvation. 
that describe the process of a person coming to know Christ as their Savior. Do you see it there? In him you also, one, when you heard the word of truth to, uh, explained by the gospel of your salvation, and two, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So there is that in this the process of salvation. But the statement he's making here is that compacted in him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to explain with the relative clause who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So the Apostle Paul continues to go on to talk about what is it he is unceasingly thankful for says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Like the writer of, an essay, of the essay that I read in this application, we often focus on that last thing that we don't have, which was his conclusion. And it makes it easy, too easy to miss all that we do have to be thankful for in Christ. The following verses with this are what the Apostle Paul specifically prayed for his readers and for us to understand that we have in Christ. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering in your, my prayers. So he's praying for this to be true of them. I'm sorry, we missed verse 17 here. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. So these term, this idea, this prayer, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. The gift that he's praying for for them is that they would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Wisdom gives insight into the true nature of things. Is something right? Is something wrong? What should be done? What should not be done? Revelation is the unveiling of what is there. Paul is praying that God himself would be their instructor in a knowledge of him. And his hope is that they would walk intimately with Christ as they learn more about what it means to be in Christ. And he explains that the purpose of his prayer is that the believers would know what is already theirs. And that knowledge that he's aiming at is an experiential knowledge. As I mentioned, I don't have that verse up here, but what I'm describing is the the crux of his prayer, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the experiential knowledge of him, that you might experience what is already yours. It used to be that when you deposited money into an account, you had a bank book. Do you remember that? And, and it would be your responsibility, or maybe if the teller was sweet, she'd fill out your bank book for, book for you, deposit it, X number of money, and maybe even tally it up for you. Warren Wearsby, 
uh, one that you know I enjoy quoting. He says, too many Christians have their names on the spiritual account but never read the bank book to find out the vast spiritual wealth that God has put to their account through Jesus Christ. And so the first of these three encouragements that we need to learn are ours in Christ is this, the hope that we have in Christ. So he continues on here and unpacking what the spirit of wisdom and of revelation would show us, and that is having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the work of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So the first that we see here is is that it would mean that we would know what is the hope to which he has called us, to which he has called you. The idea of a hope of our calling is interesting because it speaks of a present impact of a hope for the future that is rooted in a, pa- in a past calling. So let's think about this rooted in the past. It's, it's rooted in the past in the sense that it's a calling that we've received. We've talked about how the term church is a combination of two terms, which means the called out of. The term church itself in the New Testament, ecclesia, means those who have been called out from among the many. And just how we live in the light of our past salvation experience, we are to live in the light of the fact that we have been called out from the rest of the world through our salvation. And as our culture loses its biblical moorings, we will feel this more and more, that the church is those who have been called out from their culture to a relationship with God. And this is much of what the book of Hebrews is dealing with. As you guys that are in small group, it it is speaking to those who are feeling the uncomfortableness of being called out of their culture. And this is a theme throughout Paul's letters. As Ephesians 4.1 challenges the Ephesians to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. 2 Timothy 1.9 tells and describes God the Father as the one who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. And we read in Romans 8.30-31 31, describing the certainty of our lives in heaven for those who have he has called. He says, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. In other words, if you have gotten on this train, you will be pulled into the final station. And it's rooted in the past, but it's also looking toward the future. It's a hope of the future to which will be fulfilled in the return of Jesus Christ for his church, those whom he has called out to be with himself. 
1 Peter 1.13 says this, Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. To fix your hope completely on him who will be brought to you. And, it, and it's intended to impact our present. Our hope in the return of Christ should impact our present, changing the way that we live in the present. 1 John 2, 28 tells us, Now little children abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Then he follows up with verse 3 from chapter 3. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Again, Wearsby says, the fact that we shall one day see Christ and be like him should motivate us to live like him today. The certainty of our hope in Christ comes again, as I said, from the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. As I mentioned, we'll be stepping back into verses 13 through 14. And these verses attribute the certainty of our future hope in becoming a reality to the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He says, in him... You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Like an engagement ring is given as a pledge of a coming marriage, the Holy Spirit is a guarantee of God's intention that we will be with Him for eternity. You know, Much is known about the city of Ephesus through archaeology. It's an archaeologist's dream site. Me, I go there and I, there's, I've never been there, but you know, there's a couple columns or something that used to look like an amphitheater and there's a bunch of rocks on the ground. But we know from archaeology that Ephesus was a wealthy city. It boasted of the Temple of Diana, which was one of the seven wonders of the known world, the ancient world. But its wealth and its splendor are gone. Like I said, it's been reduced to a few columns. (laughs) Still, the Christians who once lived there are today in heaven, enjoying what they had been hoping for, living eternally with their Lord and Savior. I'm sure that they found themselves at times Tempted to just live for the Ephesian dream, right? Having a little place down on the Mediterranean that they could holiday at. What would you say that you are hoping for? What's your hope? We need to ask ourselves if we're hoping for the fulfillment of the American dream. Or have we been called out from among our neighbors to what is eternal? Where does it show? Does it show in what you talk about? Does it show in what, where you invest your riches? What's eternal? What's temporary? Does it show in, in what you do with your evenings? Does it show in, in, in you being characterized as being hopeful 
in this present world? Have you lost your hope? If you feel like you don't have any hope for anything as a follower of Christ, my prayer is that you will know the hope that you have in your calling to be with Christ as his child. And you can only know it personally through your personal walk with him. I also think that the following encouragements will serve to inform you or remind you of why we hope in Christ. Some of you have had hope in the fact that once you got your leaves all piled up in one spot, they were going to stay there. I realize we're jumped ahead here a little bit, sorry. And then we had three days of wind this week, right? The hope we have in our calling is much more secure. And we see that in the second and in the third encouragements that we see here. We see this, the security of that hope as Paul unpacks this idea of his prayers for believers. We see the value, the value we hold to in Christ. He, he says that you may know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, notice something about this inheritance, okay, Talk, being talked about here. We're not talking about riches or an inheritance that we gain. That, that's other places in Scripture. But this is not talking about our inheritance. Notice who the beneficiary is of this statement. He's praying that we might know what are the riches of God's glorious inheritance located in his children? That we might know how God equates his children as being riches, which are an inheritance that he looks forward to enjoying. God's inheritance is found in the saints. Those who have been redeemed by accepting Christ with the Holy Spirit indwelling in them are his inheritance. He looks forward to being with us and to walking with us as he once did with his created image bearers in the garden. The commentator Wiest writes, Paul prays, that we might know how precious the saints are in God's eyes as his inheritance. He is glorified in his saints, and this glory is valuable. It is part of the wealth that God possesses, dear to him, that more dear to him than all of the splendors of creation. We are as his children. The value that God places on us should be impacting us as his children in many ways. It should impact the way that we, that we see ourselves. I mean, picture this, this scenario, okay? A father uh, is sitting down with his daughter, and he's unpacking his box of treasures, okay? And, and one of them might be a flag folded into a triangle, that draped the casket of his grandfather. 
Another might be a, 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 pack, a package of, of rare coins, the value that he doesn't even know how to estimate. And, it, and as they're going through all these different treasures and things, just imagine how he leans down to her ear and says, do you want to know what my most prized treasure is of all things? And she's thinking, okay, we must be getting up to something even better than what we've seen already. And he whispers into her ear, you are. He's trying to communicate to his daughter just how valuable she is to him. And our Heavenly Father is communicating this to us. We are the riches of his glorious inheritance. This means that we are so much more richly valuable to God than what his enemy is telling us all the time that we are worth to him. It also means that when dealing with other Christians, it's important to remember you are dealing with God's valued possession, that he doesn't take kindly to someone devaluing. 2020 did a story once about unclaimed assets in state treasurers that state treasurers were holding on to. Since that report, they, I remember them doing an update talking about how, how many stories they had of people logging on to their treasurer's websites and finding inheritances that they didn't know about, or their valuable stocks, insurance policies, or payouts, bank accounts, or other investments that heirs have the right to claim but simply are sitting there waiting because they didn't know it was there. The value that God places on us should be impacting our assurance of our eternity with Him. To, to, to see this and find out the value that we are to Him that He's aware of, that He's completely knowledgeable of, that He looks forward to spending time with. It should give us even greater assurance of our his plan that we will spend eternity with him. And he is invested. We are his investment. Or we are what he is invested in. And it cost him greatly. As Ephesians 1, 7 says, in Christ we have a redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Remember again that the Holy Spirit is a ministry to us as a guarantee of our inheritance. No wonder God trusts no one else but a member of the Trinity himself to guarantee his inheritance to us or his inheritance to himself. And here we also talk about how he is our inheritance. I love that line in David Crowder's how he loves us. We are his portion and he is our prize. We see that relationship in the connection between these verses as well. And when we're tempted to think that, that our value is in what we accomplish or what others think of us, we must remember that our true value is in who we are to God in Christ. 
we also see a third encouragement that we can take away from our being in Christ here. And again, these are encouragements, not just the fact that we are in Christ, but we are encouragements in the fact of how secure we are in Christ. He says his prayer is that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. His power is toward his believing ones. Now, notice, we're just going to pick this apart a little bit here. It's not for us who believe. Like he uses it on our behalf. It's not in those who believe. As if we have access to his power to use for our purposes. It's toward in these verses. Toward those who believe. It's the power he uses to accomplish what he intends to do. And that is keeping and growing us in Christ. Notice the degree of God's power that's used here. It's incomparably great. And we're talking about the only all-powerful being. So, So any use of this incomparably great power does not deplete his power in any way. The literal term for this incomparably great is called a throwing beyond, meaning beyond measure, more than enough, surpassing power beyond what we have anything to compare it to or to comprehend it with. The intention is that we might know, notice though, the greatness, that we might know what we don't have anything to compare it to, that it would be singularly elite and highest in our mind, in our experience, greater than any megaton expression of energy, that we might know his incomparably greatness, the far reaches of this limitless power. And notice how much power is available for God to accomplish what he plans for us. Oh, sorry. Notice that. According, it's according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Translation here could be, I mean, there's a lot of like energy terms here, okay? That power is like the energy of the inherent power of his manifested strength, which he brought about in Christ in his resurrection. God wants us to know that all of his power is at work in completing the good work that he began in you. Christ's resurrection is the event that is pivotal to our faith, to say the least. The power of the resurrection points to God's power over death. Acts 2.24 reminds us, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Death was not powerful enough. Notice also that this verse speaks of another form of power 
Okay, greater than like, uh, different than like a megawatt or megaton or kilowatt expression of power. It speaks of the power of authority. The power of authority. God not only has the strength that is embodied in the resurrection, but has exalted Jesus. Jesus is exalted to the highest place. And with that exaltation, he's allowed to bring whoever he desires to be there with him, to be in him until we can be physically with him. Let's say that I decided to open up the first branch of JD's savings and loan, right? You come to my branch office with your hard-earned $100,000. And I gladly take your money and I write you out, I owe you $100,000 plus 3.5% interest. And then you see me go over to my freezer and take out a coffee can and stuff the money into it, close it up, close the freezer and smile. Another, you know, first and another satisfied customer. You'd be nuts to think that your money is at all safe. You'd you'd be doubting my character for one thing and be doubting the safety of my home and the safety of my freezer. I might even honestly intend to pay you back. I may deeply value your hard-owned savings and what they are to you, but still the question is, do I have the power to protect your money from theft or from disaster? Further, do I have the authority or influence that someone to keep someone from breaking into my home and stealing it? We're told, in him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. If you're asking how secure you should feel about being in Christ, I would tell you, you can place your hope in the fact that God has a purpose in his calling you into being in relationship with him. Secondly, you can live in the truth that he values his inheritance. And that's why he has sealed you in Christ with the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, you can rest in the fact that he guards you with his power which is the same that was at work in Christ. You know, the late newspaper publisher, William Randolph Hearst, invested in a fortune collecting art treasures from around the world. One day, Mr. Hearst found a description of some valuable items that he felt he must own, so he sent his agent abroad to find them. After months of searching, the agent came back and reported that he had finally found the treasures after months. And they were in Mr. Hearst's own warehouse. Hearst had been searching frantically for treasures he already owned. If he had just read the catalog of his artwork, he would have saved himself a great deal of money and trouble. So it is with us, with the Apostle Paul, I pray that you might know 
the hope, the value, the security that you have in Christ. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I thank you so much that your greatness, your love, your devotion, your your provision for us is such a wonderfully awesome thing to review together. I thank you so much, Father, that you have granted and given to us everything that we need for life and godliness through our relationship with you. Lord, as we hit bumps in the road this week, as we hit failures, as we hit questions, as we hit fears, Lord, would would you bring us back to who you are? It's so amazing that you have wrapped us up in you, that you've sealed us in you, that you give us the opportunity to have every aspect of our lives and are being defined by who you are. Lord, I pray that you would allow us to apply the truth of who you are to where you have us now. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.